Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to the FCPA Compliance Report. First, have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? You wanted to talk about something in the compliance or compliance-related field, but really had no idea how to get started? Take a listen from our sponsor, One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. In this episode, I visit with compliance practitioner Vera Sharapanova. Vera is a multi-year compliance practitioner now living in Italy, but she began her practice in Russia. And she wrote uh, the only compliance handbook in native Russian entitled Compliance Program of an Organization. In this episode, we talk about her recent FCPA blog post, Who's to Blame, the Bad Apple or the Barrel, where we talk about some of the differences in situational perspective and personality perspective, group dynamics in the corporate decision-making, and the myth of the rogue employee. She also talks about her consulting practice, Studio Etica, and the practice of compliance in European and emerging market. It's a fascinating exploration of a really uh, interesting set of topics for every compliance practitioner. I know you will enjoy it. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode, and you are in for a very large and, uh, by way of Moscow, Italian treat today, as I have Vera Sherpanova. I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, she is a compliance practitioner, a compliance specialist, and a compliance guru, and she wrote a very interesting article um, for the FCPA blog entitled, Who's to Blame, the Bad Apple or the Barrel?, and I um, have been following her work for some time on the FCPA blog, and I took a look at her LinkedIn profile, and she has a uh, really unique, I think, uh, compliance practice and professional background. So with that incredibly long-winded introduction, Vera, first of all, thank you uh, for taking the time to visit with me today. Thank you so much, Tom, for this uh, great introduction, and especially for calling me a, a compliance guru. <laughs> that sounds really, that sounds really great. Uh, well, indeed, I have a substantial hands-on experience in compliance and ethics. I worked in-house for eleven years. Uh, I started in, at EY, then moved to Renova, and then to Hilti. On my last in-house position of the regional compliance officer, I was responsible for compliance and ethics program implementation all across Eastern Europe with my uh, direct reports based in 10 countries. But two years ago, uh, we kind of uh, decided to change our lives completely and my family moved to Italy where I founded my own private practice, which is called Studio Etica. Uh, I know that the name sounds a bit crazy in English, but uh, I, I just hope it sounds uh, a lot better in Italian. So Studio Etica is a boutique consultancy that provides advice on corporate ethics and compliance programs. Although uh, we're based in Milan, we do not work exclusively with the, the Italian market. We have been at the forefront in execution of a wide array of compliance projects for large international organizations based in various jurisdictions. And I just hope that it will go like this uh, in the future. 
So as a fellow author of a book on compliance programs, I was incredibly intrigued to see that you have written a Russian language book entitled Compliance Program of an Organization. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that book. Uh, that's a great question, and that was a great experience. Um, I guess you, as, a, as, a, as an author, uh, completely understand that uh, a book uh, for an author is always, um, from a personal standpoint, is a very important experience, a great project. So uh, there were basically two goals uh, behind uh, that idea. The first uh, reason to... Uh, write this book, the first uh, objective was all about creating some value for the Russian compliance community. At that time, and uh, we're talking about the time frame of like five years ago, the profession has already been well developed. I mean, the majority of international and big, large, uh, uh, big um, Russian organizations had a local compliance officer in staff. Uh, I was just one of them. First, a local compliance officer for only for Russia, and then I assumed the responsibility for the whole Eastern European region. Um, and everything in terms of ethics and compliance was coming from U.S., from Europe. I mean, all the resources, all the materials we used were always in English. So we had to translate them, obviously. And I thought it would be like great idea to have some kind of a repository of knowledge in our native language, uh, well-structured, accessible, with a good coverage of both international regulations and practices, as well as our local Russian legislation. Now, the second goal behind the, uh, the idea to write a book was uh, a more personal one. At that point of time, I spent like 10 years in compliance, and uh, that was a certain summary of my experience and a moment of reflection, I could call it, on the past to understand better what would be the way forward. That's a great way to phrase it. And uh, I think many of the things you thought and felt were exactly uh, uh, what I was going through uh, when I wrote my book uh, as well. So uh, first of all, kudos, because I understand uh, the time effort and um, that goes into it. So uh, very well done. But you recently, uh, as I said, had an, a post on the FCPA blog entitled Who's to Blame, the Bad Apple or the Barrel? And let me just start off by asking, what led you to write this article? Uh, this is the article that resonates 100% with my professional experience, both in-house and as a consultant with my clients. Unfortunately, scapegoating is a very common practice. The topic of bad apples and barrels have been widely discussed in academia. As far as I know, it has been there for quite a while. Behavioral scientists have challenged many times the assumption that business scandals are invariably the result of companies having hired bad people, quotes, uh, who intended to commit fraud or other wrongdoing within, within their respective organizations. Instead, we need to take a more holistic approach and look at the situations and influences that impact everyday decisions and actions, ethical or otherwise. Unfortunately, this idea is still not that much of a common sense in corporate world. I thought it would be good to write a piece on the topic and see how it would resonate with the readership. And actually, I see that it did. Uh, it, it very much did. In America, we have an ongoing debate called uh, nature versus nurture, 
and that generally involves around is a child or a person innately born with a certain set of characteristics uh, or the nature part. And then the nurture part is what uh, from your family or your parents, what values did you learn or perhaps not learn? So this this debate resonates in a lot of areas, but I was really intrigued at, with the way you opened the article from the EY uh, Global Fraud Survey, survey uh, 2018, where only 22% of uh, the respondents said that integrity is an individual responsibility. And perhaps I should have le- uh, left this question to the end because uh, uh, you point out pretty quickly and as you just said in uh, your opening remarks, you look, looked at it much more holistically. And it, uh, I guess one of the things that struck me about your article was that uh, even with this sort of uh, survey finding and people believing that a company is responsible for individual integrity, it really takes both. And that seemed to be uh, one of the conclusions you came to at the end. But I was wondering if you could really uh, sort of take us through the couple of different things you had in terms of personality perspective and situation perspective. Of course. So the whole story of personality profiling started with the work of a scientist called Carl Jung in the early 20th century and continued with what we all know as the big five traits theory. I'm sure that all of us at least once in a lifetime took some kind of a personality test to get a score and be assigned to a certain profile like introverts, extroverts, analyzers, directors, the names can be different. These personality tests are still quite popular with HR departments of many organizations, by the way. So the personality perspective suggests that the person And uh, his or her inherent personality traits are key in predicting uh, behavior. The situation perspective suggests, on the contrary, that the situation people are in is a better immediate predictor of uh, the behavior uh, than personality scores are. So the debate between the supporters of personality perspective and situation perspective is far from its end. It's still going on uh, between uh, different psychologists. But I tend to agree with those who think that truth is somewhere in the middle, as always. Uh, The easiest argument here would be that the situations we encounter um, are not created equal. So their intensity uh, varies very much. And so as our response. The two perspectives are, of course, not mutually exclusive. Is the... It's the interplay between the personality and the situation as a source of, of our behavior that defines our actions and decisions. Vera, one of the things that struck me was that uh, in addition to thinking about things from the individual perspective and thinking about things from the company perspective, it seemed to me you added even a third component, which was that Uh, The majority of decisions in modern organizations are made in teams, leading to some remarks around group dynamics, and that the group dynamics are uh, really even separate and apart from company, separate and apart from the individual. So if I can analogize to the military, many soldiers will say uh, the reason uh, that they fight uh, or engage in combat is for their buddies. You know, the group dynamic, the team cohesiveness. 
And it really seemed uh, that you were uh, writing that in addition to whatever controls a company might have, it's the individual group that a person is involved with uh, that can lead to uh, both positive and negative behaviors. And you even pointed out that uh, dysfunctional group dynamics can cause people to condone behaviors and decisions they would not uh, normally consider to be appropriate. So it seemed to me that uh, uh, incentives around the group decisions also play a role in this. Would that be a fair ass uh, assessment? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's very important because, like, even if we do not forget about the general context and uh, the culture or the climate of the organization, this dimension uh, tends to be forgotten uh, in many cases, unfortunately. However, uh, it has uh, a very important role. Indeed, the majority of decisions made in large organizations are made in groups. Whether this involves formal groups such as the board, the executive committee, or a leadership team, or, or any other teams at lower levels of the organization, or informal groups such as a leader approaching a colleague and seeking advice, for example, it is very rare that an individual in a modern organization makes uh, a decision without someone else being aware of it or someone else approving it. On one hand, research has shown that when working on a task in isolation, groups tend to outperform individuals. On the other hand, behavioral studies show that unethical behavior may be more prominent in groups, firstly because of the development of groupthink, and secondly because of the diffusion of responsibility. For example, according to one of the experiments, merely making people feel like they are part of a collective not only increases their propensity to bribe, but makes them feel less responsible when doing so. So you see that this concept of um, social dynamics in group plays really a very important role here. So going back to your uh, advocacy of a holistic approach to compliance and ethics, do you find that that message resonates with clients in your consultancy that they need to not simply focus on the individual, not simply focus on your controls, not simply focus on the group, but really uh, design your program around all three and perhaps other areas to help uh, not only prevent and detect, but also uh, remediate if something uh, does go askance? Um, I guess uh, the, the diffusion of... Um Behavioral ethics and uh, the studies and uh, experiments uh, that behavioral scientists uh, do uh, plays a very positive role here. Because, uh, like for for like a couple of years now, um, I see that the major compliance events always have some sessions or panels on behavioral ethics, and um, the knowledge about the subject gets. Uh, gets um, diffused all around all around Europe, uh, maybe a little bit less than in the US, but I mean, we still have some something. Um, and um, the compliance practitioners get used to this idea that uh, it's not all about the individual responsibility. It's going slowly, 
but I mean, we are, we are working with that. <laughs> we try. Uh, for example, we at Studio Etica, we're focusing very much on uh, behavioral studies, on behavioral ethics. And basically, uh, if you ask uh, the clients that I work with, uh, they would surely confirm that uh, the, the words like it's not all about bad apples, which is uh, kind of very, very common of me to say that. Well, uh, you end your piece by saying that fostering ethical conduct requires creating an ethical climate that reminds people of their moral principles, as well as middle managers actively translating this message into their team's daily work lives. Um, it seems to me that really uh, you conclude your piece by saying it, it's all of these things. It's the internal controls and incentives that a company may have. It's the uh, individual moral and uh, ethical uh, standards and principles uh, of the individual, and yet it's still important to have middle managers translating a corporate message into really a group message for the group or the team. And is does that sort of message, uh, do you think that resonates uh, out uh, in the greater corporate community? Uh, indeed. Uh, the focus on middle management um, is paramount. Arguably, the biggest obstacle to creating optimal dynamics within a group is the leader it's, uh, himself or herself. Uh, that's why middle management should be a focal point of compliance and ethics training efforts, for example. Uh, and I guess compliance officers need to team with HR people here because uh, a lot of issues we're talking about are kind of HR, more or less. Leaders must work hard to create a dynamic that empowers group members and allows them to express their views without fear or favor. To do this, uh, there must be first and foremost uh, a very clear understanding within the group of the organizational values and the associated behavioral expectations from the team members. The harder work involves breaking down dysfunctional group dynamics which already exist and creating a, an environment that fosters integrity and honesty, an environment where group members hold one another accountable to the behavioral standards, regardless of their reputation status, something of this kind. An environment where open and honest feedback is delivered regularly and in a respectful manner. An environment where conflict, instead of being avoided, is fully embraced. So there is a lot of work, and I truly believe that we need to, um, we as compliance professionals need to need to focus on our training efforts on middle managers and help them. Well, Vera, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted uh, any more information on your, your consulting company. Uh, could they, uh, where could they go to find out? Of course. Uh, I encourage uh, the listeners to share and comment on my posts, which come out on a regular basis, for example, on FCPA blog. Um, I'm also a regular speaker at compliance uh, conferences and roundtables here in Europe, so I invite everyone to join me at these events. Uh, all the most recent news are always posted on my LinkedIn page, so please feel free to send the invitation to connect. Also take a look at our website, www.studioetica.com, where you can find information about our services, our white papers, legal briefs, where you can register for our webinars, which we run on a regular basis, 
and where you can contact us in case you would like us to help you with your compliance and ethics project. Well, Vera, this has been a fascinating exploration on uh, one of my favorite topics, and I really appreciated the unique spin uh, or, or way you had to look at it, and I greatly look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you so much, Tom. Uh, thank you very much for this opportunity to share um, my comments and um, my outlook for for the topic. I think that's a fascinating subject, uh, personality perspective, situation perspective, the interplay between the two, the group dynamics, the general context. All those things should be taken into account by compliance practitioners. And the more we talk about the topic, uh, the better it gets, presumably. <laughs> All right. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. As I said in the intro, I'm uh, looking for new podcasts. If you're interested in a podcast, producing your own podcast, and having a place to put it on the Compliance Podcast Network, please give me a shout. I hope you'll join me again next week for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. This has been a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.